Hello, I'm Doug Hallward-Dreemeyer, partner in the Washington, D.C. Office of Ropes and Gray and chair of the firm's appellate and Supreme Court practice. Today, I'm joined by IP Litigation Counsel Evan Gorbitz in Ropes and Gray's New York office. In today's Supreme Court podcast, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's recent copyright decision, Star Athletica versus Varsity Brands, better known as the Cheerleader Uniform case, which was decided by the court on March 22nd. The decision found that certain decorative elements of cheerleader uniforms were potentially protectable by copyright law and, more generally, provided guidelines for assessing the copyrightability of the design elements of useful articles. Evan, why don't you summarize for our audience what the impact is at the high level of this decision? Okay, sure, no problem. I'll sort of lay out one technical result of the decision and the practical result of the decision. Um, Technically, for copyright folks, um, the interesting thing here is that the decision rejects the long-standing distinction between physical and conceptual separability. Uh, I'm sure we'll go into that in greater detail. And as far as the practical implications, because this decision laid out new and arguably more lenient guidelines for assessing the copyrightability of uh, the design elements of useful articles, this might end up leading to expanded attempts to protect clothing designs and industrial designs more generally through copyright law. So it might lead to uh, the fashion industry and consumer products companies more generally trying to get more expansive copyright protection for their products. So Evan, this is an odd uh, case in that it's not very often that we have pictures The Supreme Court usually (laughs) issues its opinions just in words. But here we have pictures of the copyrighted uh, uniforms. And I have to confess, when I look at the designs here, what I see are cheerleader uniforms. So maybe you could unpack this a little bit for us. When you're talking about these doctrines of separability, How did they apply to the question presented in this case as applied to cheerleader uniforms? Okay, sure. And yeah, this is the uh, tricky part of the decision, really. Um, How do you separate conceptually, physically, or however you might do it, the copyrightable and protectable aspects of any given cheerleader uniform from cheerleader uniforms more generally. As you said, the decision does include pictures, and if you look at the pictures, and uh, we can't really do that on a podcast, you see that the designs that are protected are essentially geometric, I guess design elements is really the way to put it, uh, chevrons and other aspects of sort of a conventional looking cheerleader costume that considered in their entirety make up the whole thing. They make up the whole costume. It's not like a picture of Mickey Mouse on a t-shirt where you can say, well, yes, there's a t-shirt and it has this completely separable illustration of uh, Mickey Mouse on it. Rather, uh, all of the elements or essentially all of the elements of the cheerleader uniform are encompassed by this design. And this is exactly why in copyright law, the doctrine of uh, separability came about. Uh, I can go into sort of the, uh, the background of that if you'd like. Well, I was taken um, by the fact that this was an opinion that was written by Justice Thomas. And 
Justice Thomas is famous for being, I suppose, a quintessential originalist. Uh, he doesn't really care much for legislative history or what courts have said legislation means over the years. He goes back to the original text as written and asks, what does this mean? So in this case, he seems to have gone back to the language of um, Section 101, which says that the design, uh, if it incorporates pictorial, graphic, and sculptural features that can be identified separately from and are capable of existing independently of the utilitarian aspects of the article, they would be eligible for copyright protection. But I'm focused on this language capable of existing independently of. Um, I suppose that's where the physical separability test comes from. How does the court's analysis square with that? I think that uh, there's, there's sort of a reasonable roadmap here. Um, traditionally, uh, separability, the separability of the pictorial, graphic, or sculptural elements of a useful article uh, were sort of broken down into two categories, physical separability and conceptual separability. Physical separability simply meant, can you cut the darn thing off? So would, for example, uh, the hood ornament of a car be protectable even though it's part of a car? Yes, because it's physically separable. Conceptual separability was slightly different and was figured basically by the uh, argument, can you sort of conceive of the protectable elements sort of existing in and of themselves as uh, an illustration or a sculpture. Generally, the way that courts, and for that matter, the legislative history, understood that was basically to say, can you remove the copyrightable elements so at the end you have two different things. You have the copyrightable elements as a sculpture or illustration, and you nevertheless still have a completely functional item without the illustration or sculpture on the other end. Uh, what this decision did was abolish it, and as you pointed out, it's a little tricky when you take a look at the language of the Copyright Act itself, because it does say that to be protectable, the design elements have to be identified separately from and are capable of existing independently of the utilitarian aspects of the article. Traditionally, that was understood as meaning, you know, you have to have copyrightable elements here on one side, you have to have the useful article on the other side. They both have to exist in and of themselves. But what Justice Thomas's decision does, and the more I think about it, the more I understand how this really does work, is that it points out that this doesn't have to work both ways. That is, if you look at the actual language, it says that the pictorial, graphic, or sculptural features must be identified separately from and must be capable of existing independently of the utilitarian aspects, but the statute itself does not say it has to go vice versa. It doesn't say that the utilitarian aspects have to exist independently themselves. So basically what this test says, and the way that Justice Thomas interpreted it, was by saying, you know, look at that cheerleader uniform, look at that t-shirt, look at that hood ornament. You know, can you basically take the graphic or sculptural elements, rip them off and kind of like slap them on a blank wall? And if so, can you identify, look, that would be a protectable work in and of itself. Uh, if so, it's protectable. And if there's nothing left over in terms of a utilitarian work afterwards, well, it doesn't matter. The test doesn't go both ways. It just goes one way. So if there's nothing left over, does that mean that in effect, 
the item itself is susceptible to copyright protection? Well, that's really the trickiest issue here, um, and that's the most problematic one. Um, the dissent to this decision basically says, yeah, that's kind of what happens at the end. If you basically say that an entire item is protectable in and of itself, um, what's left? Can you basically copyright a shovel? Can you basically say that every uh, sort of physical aspect of the shovel should be protectable by copyright because a picture of the shovel would be uh, protectable? Uh, the dissent says, no, that can't be right. That, that's just sort of an absurd result, so we can't accept it. And I think this is something that really is going to have to kind of work its way through the Copyright Office uh, as they try to sort of uh, interpret the extent and, and sort of scope of, uh, you know, where this will lead us. Well, as a practical matter, what do you think this means in terms of the interests of those I guess, top-end manufacturers who have the designs and their relationships with their uh, knockoff competitors. Okay, well, I think what this means is that going forward, apparel companies, uh, clothing companies, for that matter, even industrial design companies, uh, are going to go to the Copyright Office, and they're going to try to register their, uh, their works, whether that is a, a particular dress design or, for that matter, a particular shovel design, and basically say, uh, we want to register the sculptural or ornamental aspects of this product. Um, we are not trying to register the useful article itself. Rather, we are just trying to register the pictorial, graphic, or sculptural features of this useful article, which just happen to encompass the entirety of the uh, useful article. And then the uh, Copyright Office will have to consider that given this uh, decision and really sort of have to work out for themselves where it is that they can draw the line, especially now that there is no real split between physical separability and conceptual separability. How searching of an inquiry does the Copyright Office apply in deciding whether to register uh, an application? Uh, as a general matter, they don't do a very uh, searching inquiry at all. Honestly, I don't actually prosecute copyright applications, but I've dealt with a couple of appeals where the Copyright Office has rejected a uh, given work as being insufficiently original. So um, generally they just take a look at a work to determine whether it constitutes copyrightable subject material, and if it does, they register it. On rare occasions they basically say, here's some guidance, you can only claim this part of a work but not that part. I think they're going to have a harder time doing that going forward and basically saying, no, you can only copyright this part, not that part. But I, I guess we're going to have to see. And then once companies do get registrations, assuming they do, uh, we'll also have to see how the uh, courts actually deal with the uh, litigation of infringement cases involving these uh, potentially expanded works and where they draw the line between granting a company copyright protection in its original work of authorship and uh, basically just uh, utilitarian articles as utilitarian articles. So I can see that we can expect the applicants to be more aggressive in what they're seeking copyright protection of, but even if they are successful, there are defenses available for entities that might be subject to suit for copyright infringement? Uh, sure. I mean, even in this case, Justice Thomas basically says, 
while we consider uh, this cheerleader uniform design to be potentially protectable, we're not opining on whether it is, in fact, in and of itself, copyrightable. There might be other reasons why it might not be. For example, this design might not be sufficiently original to qualify for a copyright. There may have been many other cheerleader uniforms created by third parties before this, uh, making this work a derivative work based on those other works. Defendants uh, in cases are also going to have uh, all sorts of arguments, including uh, fair use. Um, they might be able to uh, claim that the original owners might not have obtained all of the necessary rights uh, from the author of the original work. There's still plenty of defenses that people should be able to bring up. So it seems that this uh, may open a whole new chapter in kinds of litigation that we'll have on a, a new playing field in terms of these design copyrights. So stay tuned for further developments. But that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Evan, for joining me in this interesting conversation. Hopefully, we'll be able to have another Supreme Court podcast soon. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. And please visit our Capital Insights page at www.ropesgray.com for more news and analysis on noteworthy issues arising out of Washington, D.C. Thank you.